welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Jody Henke. This podcast is brought to you by Case IH. Everything Case IH makes is designed, engineered, and built by farmers. Tom Farber moved to Britain, South Dakota in 1982. He immediately started making a positive splash in town by starting a community theater, refurbishing dilapidated buildings, recruiting medical professionals to town, and even leading Sunday school kids in music. Successful Farming's Gil Gullickson spent some time with Tom to find out how he does it all. So where did you grow up, Tom? I grew up on a farm two miles west of Walnut Grove, Minnesota. And that's Walnut Grove on a little house on the prairie. On a little house on the prairie. And uh, claim to fame is the pageant at Walnut Grove, which has been going on since 1978, is on what used to be my parents' farm. That's been going on since that time. And just about everybody in our family have been in the pageant. And that's just one mile out of town. And, And the original Laura Ingalls Wilder homestead is north of Walnut Grove, about four miles, roughly, three, four miles. So, yeah, that's the claim to fame. And How'd you happen to come to Britain? When I graduated from South Dakota State, I had an, a job offer. I interviewed on campus, and I interviewed with, at the time, Northwestern National Bank Corporation, and they had an opening in the Aberdeen area. It was going to be in Mobridge. There was an opening in Mobridge. And since I was kind of a homebody as far as not wanting to be extremely far away from the farm back in Minnesota. I don't know if I want to go to Mobridge. And it was mostly ranching, which I wasn't as familiar with, you know, being from a grain farm in southern Minnesota. And so I made the decision then that I'm going to give teaching a try. And, you know, basically, I was the second teacher in a startup program. The teacher before me had been there one year and got it reestablished somewhat. And I came in and, and tried to take it the next level and everything. And we had some successes and everything. And when I determined that I wasn't going to be going back to Bridgewater, I contacted the HR person in the bank in Aberdeen, asked if there was any openings again, if I could re-interview. And uh, they said, yeah, I think we've got maybe a position. So um, I came to Aberdeen and said, I'd like you to go to Britain to interview with the manager there and came up here and he took me uh, around the area. Of course, we got talking about my background. And and one of the things he was most interested in was the fact that I I had a minor in speech and theater, which is pretty unusual for an ag teacher. (laughs) But it was because of my experience with the pageant and everything, I just thought, this isn't going to hurt me in life. And actually, I think that's what got me the job here, because I wanted to start a community theater. And this would be acting, not the movie theater at the time. That was before that. And Tom Hansen and was the manager and his wife, they were very active supporters of the arts. And he'd be somebody that would be very interesting to talk to. And uh, But yeah, Tom Hansen is the reason that I'm in Britain, because he uh, apparently saw something in me that was something he liked and whatever. And so that's how I ended up. You were kind of early 80s. You were heading into a hornet's nest with the farm economy. Oh, was that apparent when you first came in? Um, Well, it's one of the reasons, you know, people ask me, why didn't you go farming? When I graduated from college, interest rates were creeping up. They weren't probably at the peak yet, 1980. And that's one of the reasons I went teaching. And then 
at the time when I thought, I don't think I want to teach my whole career, interest rates were 18 to 24%. And my dad was still farming. And he and I talked and, and I said, Dad, I said, it's hard enough to make it a living in farming right now with yourself. We don't have that big a farm. We're going to, you'd have to take on more debt to buy some land. And at 18%, it, it doesn't make sense. And so really, that's the reason I didn't end up in farming because once you're away from farming for a while, it's hard to get back into it, especially if you're used to everything and, or if you got married or whatever the case may be. So yeah, it was the times didn't lead themselves to getting into farming at the time. So that's why I ended up coming north. The banking part of it, I was not aware in the spring of 82 when I came up here how bad it was. And it really had, didn't hit its peak until about 84 when it really started to snowball. All the renewal of debt that was very common at that time was coming to head. When the land prices went up because of the late 70s, everybody thought, we've got equity in the land. We'll put the uh, debt that you couldn't pay back. You know, We'll just put that back on the land. And that worked if you figured out that, hey, I can't continue to do this year in and year out. That's when the 82 was approximately the time when the cash flow came into play. That was a big change for farmers. They weren't used to doing a cash flow like that to determine where they were going. So there was definitely tense times and working with farmers here in town that was uh, very stressful and a lot of hours put in. So, yeah, you look back and what you've weathered, and there's not as many farmers around, obviously, as there once was, which has concerns for me. Uh, you know, I just think that we're going to be ruled by a large conglomerations of farms. The small guy is going to be, is being squeezed out, and that's unfortunate because that's what built this country. Was there ever a point during that time where I thought, oh, my gosh, what did I get into? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can remember when I moved up here just to kind of unwind, I'd go up to Roy Lake State Park and take a book and later summer or whatever and just read a book while I was up at the park just to kind of unwind a little bit because, yeah, it was it was pretty tense. Activities, like you mentioned, the community theater. Did you start in on that about the time that you... When I moved to Britain, it would have been the uh, fall of 82, spring of 83, we had meetings to just see if there was interest. And there was. There was interest to do community theater. And I'm trying to think if it was 83 or 84 was our first year at Fort Sisseton. Fort Sisseton, they were looking for ways to enhance the festival every June. So that was our first foray into community theater here at Fort Sisseton. And from that, in the fall of 84, we did our first play here in town, a dinner theater. We had a lot of people that were very interested in community theater, mostly of the retired folks, and they were just a tremendous amount of fun to work with. And not everybody was retired, but we uh, had lots of fun. So yeah, that was when we started that. And we had a lot of plays for about 10 years until uh, I got married and started having a family, and I had to cut back. So we went more sporadically. We had some other people from the community that would direct, but that eventually waned as uh, interest for many volunteer activities has waned in many communities, which is unfortunate. It just 
giving back to the community or or providing something to the community that wasn't there before. You know, for a while it was great, but then, you know, it's gone downhill. And now we, in some cases, have trouble even casting a show because people don't want to give up the time and everything. And especially we've had a lot of younger people that are working jobs and everything and can't get away. And so it's been a challenge. But a few years ago, we went to every other year doing a melodrama at Fort Sisseton. And now we're trying to get back and do that every year. But we being basically me as director, and in some cases directing and acting both and everything. But we used to do plays at the Masonic Temple. That's where we did our dinner theater and everything. And now with the new event center that's been built here in Britain, there's a beautiful theater there, but it's not complete yet. And somewhere down the line, hopefully we'll be able to do a production there in that building. I think the last play that was done in town here was probably 10 to 12 years ago. The plays were great, and once the movie theater in Britain came up for sale, Tom saw another opportunity. When we come back, he explains how he got into the movie business. Stay tuned. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit BuiltByFarmers.com to see their stories and even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH. How'd you get in the movie business? When I came to town, the theater was open as a movie theater. It was open and closed during that time, not all the time, because movies had kind of gotten out of favor because of videos and other things on TV, sporting events, whatever. I went to a few movies back when I first came to town, but it had gotten kind of run down and just, it must have been closed at some of the time. It wasn't open all the time. It was Ivan Bessie, who still ran it, who was getting up in age. And so in 1985, I think it was December of 85, he closed the theater. And so he sat empty and the marquee was getting to look really bad and everything. Then... uh 87 came along and was announced that he was going to sell out, sell memorabilia from the theater and stuff like that. And I thought at the time, I said, we had done plays at the Masonic Temple for the community theater. And I said, oh, I wonder if that would be something that we could use it for community theater and do movies. Didn't have a stage really to speak of, but I said that wasn't necessarily a big deal. And so I approached... Ivan, with that in mind, to find out and if that was a possibility, he said, sure, he'd sell it. And this was maybe before the sale. This was like maybe a year or so before. And he said, well, wanted like $70,000 for the building. Well, my banking background and everything told me, he says, how are you going to do that open on weekends, fix this place up and get it back in a condition where people want to come to it again? I said, uh, pretty much dropped it. Yeah, so I think that was probably a year before. And then 87 came and he was going to have the sale. So I went and talked to him and said, would you be willing to come down in your price that you're asking a year or so ago for the theater? And here's what, what I've got in mind. Community theater is looking for a place maybe to have plays, but we'd you know, entertain the idea of having movies possibly as well. And so I believe what I did is I made an offer to him for the theater 
And I think it was the neighborhood ten, twelve thousand dollars just to see. And for a brief time, we had a gentleman's agreement that was going to be okay. He'd sell it and everything. And it wouldn't probably happen till after the sale of goods and everything. Well, I didn't hear anything from him for a couple of weeks. So I called him up and, and he said, well, I've had a better offer. Okay. My offer was out there and everything. And uh, I thought, well, if he's got a better offer. Okay. I guess I'm not going to worry about it. And then uh, I heard who it was, but the story was that, uh, and this happened in a number of communities in the Midwest, these theaters, a lot of them had basements and they had nice maple floors. Well, you cut out the up above and put new walls in and you make a very nice racquetball court. That was kind of the thing because it happened in Hollywood Theater, Tracy, Minnesota, which was a theater we went to when I was growing up. I don't think it was a basement there, but I heard that they gutted the theater out and they put in two or three racquetball courts in there, which was a fad for the time. So I thought, okay, somebody wants to make a racquetball court out of it. I thought, good luck with that. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me in my mind. But well, anyway, that never happened. I don't know if it was just somebody to try to get more money or whatever. So I just pretty much forgot about it. Well, the week of the sale, I think it was about the week of the sale, week of before the sale, we had a very community-minded individual, didn't like the limelight. He was a behind-the-scenes guy, and if you needed help and it made sense to him, he was there to help out. He came and talked to me. He says, I understand you made an offer in the theater. Yeah, I did. And at this time, I should preface this by saying I was a little intimidated by this guy. He knew who I was. I knew who he was, but he was kind of a mover and shaker in the community, and uh, so I was a little intimidated by him. But anyway, he, he came and talked to me, and he said, you know, this community needs that theater. We need it just for something for young people to do, not just young people, but for older people, rather than sit home and watch TV or go out and get in trouble or whatever. We need this. And he said, I understand you had an offer, and it was accepted, and then he backed out and whatever, and, and you kind of just walked away from it. I said, yeah, that's, that's about right. He says, well, tell you what, what if I buy it? I fix it up, and you run it, and then in a year or so, you can buy it from me. Well, I thought, was I really looking for something that was kind of like milking cows, you know, only on weekends, you know? <laughs> this is something I want to do every weekend of my career here. And I thought, well, you know, it doesn't mean I have to do it forever, get somebody else in to do it. And uh, I said, well, that was when I was dating my wife, and she thought it would be an okay idea. And there was a lot of people that were, hey, that would be great, you know, open it back up. It's been closed since 85. Let's get it going again. So that's how I got into the movie business. And what he did is he, he did what he said. He said, uh, we had a contract. He never laid anybody off in the wintertime. He kept them busy, redoing machinery, working on things. He had his crew come in. We took all the seats out of the theater, put a new floor in. Got the building all painted, put all the seats back in, and we opened April 30th, 1988. So we worked on all the winter and got it going. And had he not done that, it would have been, it was the only way to do it because I, I would not have had the finances. And back then, theaters could not get SBA loans. But that changed um, probably within the last 20 years. So there wasn't a lot of options, and that's probably why a lot of theaters closed 
there wasn't a lot of communities that thought maybe they were that important or that it was just the trend and you know, that's the way it's going to be. So has it been open every weekend since then? We closed several times when Fort Sisseton was on, since I was active up there. And we wouldn't necessarily get a big crowd in town here. But that has changed now. The festival crowd isn't as big as it used to be because a lot of people in the area have been there. It's not that much new. So for the most part, the only time now we were closed, of course, lengthy time was COVID. I know I had read the film to digital. That mm -hmm. must have been a, a big thing. Big thing. Big thing. Our last film projection was in 2012. Equipment came, and uh, the next week we started right away with digital. Talk about the community coming out to support the theater. For everything I read and was told, if you're going to go digital, you better do it now because there's not going to be film, and you don't want to get stuck. And so the spring of 2012, we thought about coming up with a campaign to raise funds to get the digital projection equipment in. And as luck would have it, 2012 was a really good year for farmers. They say, you know, some things are all about timing. It was about timing. We sent out a letter to the public, and I should back that up. In 2000, the theater was going through some tough times, and I said I was having to dig into my pocket to keep it going. And I started what I call our star sponsor program, which started out like $40, then it went to $50, and then it announced we got $75. Somebody can put their name as a sponsor on the marquee for that week's movie. And that money goes back into the theater to keep it going. I don't take the money out. It goes in the savings account. So we had that account. So I sent out letters to everybody that had given that way. And then I just made it known that... We're going to close because this equipment is going to cost us over $70,000. And I think the campaign started in June. And by the end of August, we had $70,000. And so that was encouragement from the community that, hey, we want to keep it here. We may not exactly ever come to movies, but it's still important that we keep it on Main Street. And I've always told people, I says, how does Britain have a, a movie theater? And I said, well... Number one, they support it. Number two, I look at it as a movie theater in a small town as a sign of community health because if they can support a movie theater, even if it's only on weekends, that's a source of pride for the community and something that's worth preserving. Tom is involved in many community activities and gets a lot done, but how does he do it all? We'll learn his secrets right after this. Stay tuned. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit BuiltByFarmers.com to see their stories and even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH. I talked with the pastor yesterday. It sounds like you were involved in uh, church activities. He said he thought it was remarkable that you were one of the only men he ever knew who did the little Sunday school mm -hmm. choir. I did Sunday school music, yeah, for like 15 years. Yeah, I just, and I don't read music. You know, they were looking for somebody, and I said, hey, my kids were in it, so hopefully people that been it over the years remember something from that time. So you were never in band or anything? Never in band. Choir. 
And then I was, of course, on stage shows at Brookings and Summer Theater and stuff and sang solos and everything. That's really where I got my confidence was singing. And only at South Dakota State could this happen during the time I was there. I was in musical Sugar, which is uh, the musical version of Some Like It Hot. And um, voice instructor came up to me afterwards, after auditioning or whatever, and he says, I want to work with you. You've got a voice that's worth training and everything. And, of course, I said, I can't read music. Well, we'll work around that. You know, just practice enough. You can sing and whatever and not have to know how to read music if you can pick out the pitch. And I've never really had a problem with pitch or anything like that. So basically from his tutorage, tutelage, that gave me the confidence. I mean, I've sung a lot of solos. I've sung in musicals and stuff. And, you know, as long as I time to practice, it doesn't bother me. So, yeah, you know, people that leave their mark on you in some way or another, you know. Harry Truman said it best, you know, and I, I think this is so fitting of a lot of things. It's amazing what can be accomplished if nobody cares who gets the credit. And I think that's just like, I mean, I don't care who gets credit. Bring something in or do something or somebody else does it. I mean, just, hey, if it needs to be done, it needs to be done. And uh, it's kind of a lot of those things that have happened here in Britain. A lot of things have gotten done. And is there one person that was behind it all? There might have been, but does it really matter? No, it got done, you know. Lions Club had 100th anniversary back in 2017, not in Britain, but the national organization. And um, we uh, approached the city about putting up a park shelter up here at the pool park. And, of course, everybody wanted it grandiose. It looked like the ones out at Custer State Park or wherever. I got pictures of those, and I says, Holy cow. <laughs> uh, do you know what that's going to cost? So we went back to the drawing board and said, how about something that's, you know, more typical of this? We'll try to spice it up a little bit. But we had it done. I mean, we hired a bunch of that done. We didn't build it ourselves, but we were the instigator of it. And sometimes that's all you need is an instigator to do it. And uh, that's kind of what's been happening, you know. Do you have any mentors here? It sounds like that guy at SDSU was your music or choir teacher. For that, I mean, now yeah, that was totally, I mean, I was an ag major, you know, with a minor in speech and theater. Goofy. But I probably have used my minor in speech and theater in a lot of ways more than my ag major just from a confidence standpoint. You uh, got any plans for the future? Are you going to keep on doing this? Or? Well, of course, I've been asked that already you know, approaching retirement age, if you want to call 65 retirement age. I'm not necessarily planning it for sure before 66 and a half, because that's maximized Social Security, whatever. But yeah, not that I've really thought of too much at this point. I always thought it'd be fun to go back and uh, be in the pageant at Wallach Grove again. But I, I don't know if that'll come to be or not. Thanks to Gil Gullickson and Tom Farber for being on the podcast today, to Case IH for sponsoring this episode, and thank you for listening. For Successful Farming, I'm Jody Henke.